pray with me? Oh God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers. And because in our weakness, we can do nothing good without you. Give us the help of your grace that in keeping your commandments, we may please you in will and deed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning and welcome to Roswell Community Church, both live and online. We're super grateful that we get to worship God together today in the midst of all that's going on in our lives. Some of us are having really great weeks. Some of us are having less than great weeks. Um, just really grateful to be able to have our hearts united under the reality that like, Christ is for us, that he's near us, that he is with us, just like we just sang. So really great to be together. By the way, if you are new, whether you've joined us online uh, for the first time or first few times, or you've just never had a chance to be able to be a part of a newcomer's connection at RCC, normally we get to do like just some of the, you know, like the, the best pizza in Roswell or just, you know, Little Caesars or little, not Little Caesars. That's, that's, that's not, that's not good pizza. Um, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to say that? Okay. Papa John's, we'll just call it that. Whatever. You know, I, we can edit this, right? We can, can we edit this? So, okay. Uh, anyway, normally we have pizza. We get to, like, hang out in a room together. We get to talk a little. We get to know you if you're new. Uh, we have an opportunity for you to ask questions, get to know the people, um, the leaders, and other newcomers. Um, we're going to do so virtually this time. On Tuesday night, this Tuesday night, if you are new, if you've never come to a newcomers event, you'd like to get to know some of the team and some of the leadership and also maybe connect to some of the other folks that are new at Roswell, this would be a great moment to do just that. All you need to do is jump on the app, which again, if you're new and you haven't been able to get the app from the App Store or from the, you know, um, Google Play, like make sure we, we don't discriminate, see? Uh, apparently we pizza discriminate, but we don't discriminate on apps, so that's good. Um, so, but we'd love to have you come and be a part of that. So you got to register so we can send you a link because again, this will be on Zoom, but it's going to be great to be together in this way. So make sure you sign up, make sure you're a part of it. Again, on the app, uh, one of the other things you'll see is um, we're going to be having an upcoming town hall meeting. So this is, this is how we connect as a church, as members. So now this is a meeting that's for members. So if you're a member, like we absolutely want you to be a part of this because like you're vested. This is a place you call home. This is one of the ways in which you're, you're committed to God's movement in the world here. But also, if you're just like a regular attender, someone who's been coming for a while, honestly, if you're new and you want to get a sense of what Roswell Community Church is like talking about, we talk about some of our financial stuff, we talk about some of the upcoming um, like elements, we talk about some of the things we're celebrating. So, And then we have an opportunity for you to ask questions about what's going on or what, what particular things have been on your heart and mind. You'll even be able to like, you know, like, like the, the question and it'll like go to the top if it gets lots of likes. So, you know, if like you're feeling like you got a great question, you want to see if it's a great question, we'll be able to comment on each other's questions. So, Anyway, it'll be an opportunity for interaction as well as kind of some insight into where we are as a church community. So if you'd like to be a part of that, jump on the app, register for it, and we'll send you the link necessary to jump in. That's going to be on Tuesday, the 9th of February. Yes, it is February already. So, um, so that's, that's some of what's coming up. We'd love to you to be a part of that. Some of the other things coming up are Steve Heimler, who's going to invite us into the wisdom of Proverbs. So my brother, my friend, come on up and look forward to hearing what God has from you. Good morning. Today, we're going to be reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. So, if you'd like to turn there with me, Proverbs, chapter 1, the first seven verses. 
The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been reading the Bible together uh, over these last, oh, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's six months. Um, and what we've been doing is every Sunday as we gather, we preach through one of the passages or one of the books or one of the sections that we've all read together. And today that brings us to the book of Proverbs. And the first thing that most people think of at least if you've read the Bible before, uh, when we come to Proverbs, is you think of those, you know, short, pithy sayings that explain how best to live our lives. And that's true in part. From this book, you know, we get those very famous aphorisms like, um, you know, pride goes before destruction, haughty spirit goes before the fall, um, iron sharpens iron, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Like, we, those are the ones we know, and, and they sort of characterize the book of Proverbs for us. And the truth is, those are good guidelines to shape our lives, and we ought to keep those in our pockets for sure. But here's where I tell you, if it's only for the pithy sayings that you visit the book of Proverbs, it's going to be like we're a man going into a house where the host has prepared a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, and we just go right past the table and go to the cupboard and grab a cereal bar and walk out. The Proverbs of this book... The short, pithy sayings, those are well worth our attention. But what many people ignore about this book is the first nine chapters, which in large part are not filled with those sayings, but instead provide us with a theology of wisdom. So many people look at Proverbs as a quaint book of practical wisdom. But please don't walk out the door today clutching only that cereal bar in your hand. I want to open up the first nine chapters and mostly the first couple of chapters. And in doing so, Lord, help our eyes to be keen to the feast that you have prepared for us. So in order to do that, let me introduce to you what for me is a very illuminating metaphor uh, for understanding these first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And, you know, I've used this, th this, is, this is the way I think about it. I've used this before. If you've been around, maybe you've heard me, but I, I can't think about it any other way. So every piece of wood, for example, has a grain to it. And if a woodworker, I'm told, I'm not much of a woodworker myself, but if a woodworker wants to shape that piece of wood into something beautiful, then he has to take his planer and begin shaving. But the caveat is that he must do it with the grain of the wood. If the woodworker planes against the grain of the wood, 
then the wood is going to chip. The wood's going to fragment. It's going to look terrible. It's only going to be fit for the scrap pile. So a woodworker knows that if he means to make something beautiful, he must observe the grain of the wood and work with it and not against it. That's what these first nine chapters of Proverbs are about. It says that God has established our world and our reality. And if you look and you know what you're looking for, there is a grain to all that exists. And that grain, according to the book of Proverbs, is wisdom. So the book of Proverbs exists to show us essentially one truth. If a person lives in line with the grain of reality, or to put it another way, with the grain of God's wisdom, then that person invites flourishing into their life. But if a person lives contrary to the grain of the universe or the grain of God's wisdom, their life will invite fracture and disaster. It's going to be important at the outset of these two sermons to remind you that what we find, listen, that what we find in Proverbs is wisdom, not promises. Very important. It's a crucial distinction. Like how many Christians have rested their hope of parenting on this? Raise up your children in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart. And these dear parents work tirelessly to raise up their children to love the Lord. But in some cases, as you well know, either by experience or just through others, sometimes children depart from it when they are old. So if that verse is a promise, like, like a conditional statement, if you do this, this will happen. If that verse is a promise, then there are only two conclusions when the children turn away. Either the Bible has lied to us or... We didn't actually raise up our children in the way. We tried so hard. We did everything we thought we were supposed to do, but somehow, somewhere, one of the cogs was missing. And now our children have grown up into disaster. And each of those conclusions is false. The Proverbs that we find in this book, they are wisdom. They are not promises. In other words, they tell us in general how life works best. In general, if you raise up your children in the way that they should go, they will continue along that path, but not always. It's wise to do so. It's wise to, ri to raise up your children with good morals, to love the Lord, but it guarantees nothing. And if you want proof of that, then just look at Matt's sermon last week on Job. Like, the most righteous man on the planet. Many of the principles found in Proverbs were likely the foundations of his life. And yet, who in the Old Testament suffered like Job? He handled his wealth righteously and lost it all. He raised his children up in the way they should go, and they died prematurely. He never failed to use just weights and measurements in all of his business dealings, and yet he went bankrupt. So all that to say, we have to be aware of the kind of words that we're reading in this book. It's wisdom, not promises. 
So the question I want to try to answer in this sermon is this. What does it mean to live in the grain of God's wisdom? Today I'm simply going to lay the foundation, and it's this, that our world is ordered by wisdom. And to live in the line of that grain invites flourishing. To live contrary to it invites disaster. And I just want to—I just want to tell you what that means. Then next week, Matt is going to show us what it, show us what it looks like to actually live in God's wisdom, specifically with respect to our words. He's going to take the second half of the book, or more specifically, chapter 15, and get down into the nitty-gritty uh, words um, of the, those pithy sayings that I was mentioning. Okay, so um, first point. What does it mean to live with the grain? Excuse me, what does it mean to live against the grain? We'll start with against. Now, the person who consciously chooses to live against the grain of God's order in this world has a title in Proverbs, and that title is fool. And you probably have an idea immediately what the word fool means. Like if you're not thinking about it from the standpoint of Proverbs, we, we think of it as somebody who fritters away their life making bad and harmful decisions, someone maybe who's easily duped or um, gullible, easily taken advantage of, but that is not how Proverbs defines fool. In fact, the word in the world of the Bible, a fool can be very smart. A fool can be very rich, very shrewd, very well respected. Listen, what makes a fool in Proverbs is not measured by IQ, but rather by a particular inclination of the heart. We see it in the second part of chapter 1, verse 7. He says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice that word, despise it doesn't say that fools aren't able to grasp wisdom and instruction. Like, it's not that they're not capable of it. It says fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool has a heart-level hatred for being told what is best, for being invited to live according to any guidelines that are not his or her own. The fool is his own point of reference. The fool is his or her, it's the sun in his or her own universe, galaxy. Now, we see the same definition of foolishness, by the way, in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1, if you'll recall, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, listen, suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal powers, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So according to Paul, the fool is a person who knows God exists and willingly suppresses that truth so that he or she may direct their own lives. Did you catch that? To reduce this to a single word, the fool is proud. The fool refuses to be taught. No one can rebuke a fool. This is living against the grain of God's wisdom. And so what happens to this fool? Well, we see it in chapter 1 of Proverbs, starting in verse 24. The context here is that uh, the personification of wisdom, lady wisdom, it says she stands at the, at the head of busy streets in the city and calls out and invites all the simple ones to come to her and to learn wisdom, to no longer be fools, but they don't all listen. Verse 24, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsels and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. So by living against the grain of reality, the fool invites certain calamity and disaster into his or her life. And then notice in verse 28 at the end there that, that when calamity arrives, there, there is an appearance of reformation in the fool's life. It says, like, when calamity comes, when pain enters, they will call upon me. It looks as though the fool is turning, saying, oh, the way I've been living against the grain of God's wisdom has brought all of this disaster into my life. Let me call out on wisdom now. But it says, wisdom will not answer in that day. In other words, a fool lives life contradicting reality, making decisions as if he or she is the only one that matters in this world, and then all of a sudden, calamity and disaster arrive, and when the fool feels the pain of that calamity, he or she will cry out to wisdom and beg her to take them back. Oh, I've reaped disaster from my actions. I see that the wisdom of God was right. Take me back. I'm so sorry. And for those who have some experience reading the Bible, growing up in the church, maybe, whatever, if you've read the Bible at all, Lady Wisdom's response is kind of shocking. Here's a fool who has sinned against God's wisdom and ordered life with no regard to God's law or God's wisdom. The fool has seen his or her own folly and repents. So will Lady Wisdom accept this fool back into her house and remove the pain of that calamity? Will she offer this fool forgiveness? No. In fact, it gets worse. It says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when the pain comes. 
Now, all that is very metaphorical. We're deep in the realm of metaphor here. So what does it all mean? The laughter and mockery of Lady Wisdom is as simple as this. It's suffering the consequences of my own foolish decisions. That's what it means. We see that in chapter 1 of Proverbs, starting in verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore, listen, therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. As, as the fool walks throughout this world with haughty eyes and boastful tongue, he or she is broadcasting seeds into, into furrowed ground, which will one day grow up into an orchard full of bitter fruit. And the promise of God is that we must always reap what we sow. The fool must one day sit in that orchard of despair and eat the bitter fruit hanging from the trees. And that is a hard truth to accept. And we know this, I mean, by experience, right? Like if a man lies to his wife for years, we know the Lord will forgive his sin, but he still has to reap what he has sown. Truth is shattered and is not immediately rebuilt by the act of forgiveness. It's step one, but it's not the full journey. Think about David um, and all, all the sins that he committed, the grievous sins, adultery, murder, deceit. We see that he repents in Psalm 51. It's beautiful. And we see that the Lord has given him forgiveness for his sins, but that did not keep him from eating the bitter fruit of those decisions for the rest of his life. So that's what happens to the fool. It's a gut-level hatred for being told what to do. And living in that way, the fool must one day reap what has been sown. So that's only the negative side of things. That's what the fool lives like. Let's look at the other side. That was living against the grain. Now let's look at what does it mean to live with the grain of reality. If living against the grain looks like pride and independence, here's what it looks like to live with the grain. Again, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God has established our world in wisdom. So here we find that to live with the grain of wisdom means to cultivate something called the fear of the Lord. Now, I know culturally this set of words is not a set of words that we are very fond of. That word fear sort of gets us off on the wrong foot. We think that we know what this phrase means by dissecting its parts and then adding it all back together. We know that fear means some sort of like trembling, um, servile posture in the face of danger. And then we know that Lord means, you know, some divine being. And so to put them back all together, it's like cowering like a slave before uh, the, the divine being who has every opportunity to smite you. Like that's, 
That's what it means in our common parlance. But that's not how Proverbs defines the fear of the Lord. So let's allow the text to define its own terms. And here I'm going to dip into Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If we're going to define the fear of the Lord, listen. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Did you hear that? All of those, all of those admonitions, like incline your heart to understanding. Seek for wisdom like silver like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. We saw that same idea with the fool. Recall that the, the fool's main disposition, main problem is a, a heart disposition, that they hated wisdom and, wisdom and instruction, like hatred. The one who wants to live in the order of reality possesses a heart and a disposition that is opposite to the fool, Treasure up my commandments. Incline your heart to wisdom. Seek it like silver. So according to this, what does it mean to cultivate the fear of the Lord? It means to long desperately for God's wisdom. Isn't that astonishing? It's not it's, it's assumed that one day we will grasp it, but that's not how Solomon explains it. He says it's in the, the seeking, it's in the longing, it's in the desire for it. There is the fear of the Lord. That's the first way it's described. And this longing is not in vain because as we see in the next couple of verses, uh, uh, verse 6 through 8, it says, for the Lord gives wisdom. Here's the ground of all that longing and seeking. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Now, are you seeing the difference between the fool and one who walks in the fear of the Lord? They could not be more different. Fools long for independence. They want to direct their own lives, to accomplish their own goals. They are their own point of reference for life. And the word we used to describe the fool was pride. But those who walk in the fear of the Lord long for a different way than that, seek after a different way. They know they are utterly dependent on the Lord. They seek after the Lord's guidance for their own life. They want to accomplish the goals of the Lord. The Lord is his or her point of reference. And so the man or woman of wisdom knows that to invite flourishing into their lives means submitting to the God-ordained order of the world. The wise person must conform to a pattern of life that he or she did not invent. Instead, 
This pattern of life is built into the very fabric of the universe by the wisdom of God. And if you want to reduce that to a word, it's humility. The fool is defined by pride. The wise man or woman, the one who walks in the fear of the Lord, is defined by humility. So from now on, whenever you see the fear of the Lord in the scriptures, just think humility. That's what it means at the end of the day. And truth be told, no one has helped me understand this Hebrew concept of the fear of the Lord better than Eugene Peterson. He's got a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, which is magnificent. And what I'm about to read you is longer than I have any right to read in a public speaking forum. Uh, and if I could make it shorter, I would. But remember your fairy tales. Sometimes enchantments take time. So, if you'll indulge me, listen to this passage from Peterson. Fear of the Lord is the best term we have to point to this way of life we cultivate as Christians. The Christian life consists mostly of what God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is and does. But we are also part of it, not the largest part, but still part. A world has been opened to us by revelation in which we find ourselves walking on holy ground and living in sacred time. The moment we realize this, we feel shy, cautious, we slow down, we look around, eyes and ears alert, like lost children happening on a clearing in the woods and finding elves and fairies singing in a circle. We stop in awed silence to accommodate this wonderful but unguessed at revelation. But for us, it isn't a unicorn and elves, it is Sinai and Tabor and Golgotha. The moment we find ourselves unexpectedly in the presence of the sacred, our first response is to stop in silence. We do nothing. We say nothing. We fear to trespass inadvertently. We are afraid of saying something inappropriate. Plunged into the mystery, we become still. We fall silent. All our senses alert. This is the fear of the Lord. If, if that does not make your heart beat fast, if that doesn't make you long to live in the mysterious grain of God's wisdom, then I'm out of words. I don't have anything else. The fear of the Lord, yes, is ethical. It works itself out in our behavior. That is true. But more fundamentally, to live in the fear of the Lord is to have our breath taken away by this unguessed at revelation of God and his ways in the world. And when we arrive at Sinai, and when we arrive at Tabor, and when we arrive at Golgotha, we fall silent and find that above all, our hearts long to be on the inside of that revelation. And that longing will inevitably flood into righteous living kind of reminds me of Peter, the apostle, when Jesus Christ was transfigured before his eyes. Peter, it's like he just walked through the woods and found a clearing where the fairies were dancing around a unicorn. He doesn't know what to say. Lord, it is good that we are here. Oh, uh, what should we do? Should, 
should we build some shelters? We can, we can build shelters for you. Like, like that astonishment and that awe. He's like, I, I, I need to do something. It, it flows out into ethics. And that, my friends, is the fear of the Lord. What is absolutely clear, both from Peterson's assessment and from what we find in these chapters of Proverbs, is that to live in wisdom is not first a matter of behavior, but a matter of astonishment first and desire second. Behavior, yes. And just to complicate this a little bit, sometimes our behavior can induce desire and induce astonishment. That is all true. But here we're focusing on the astonishment. And when Solomon wants to induce his sons to choose the way of humility, the fear of the Lord, living in the grain of God's wisdom, he actually spends very little time rolling out a logical argument. Did you notice that as you read this week in these first few chapters? At the end of the day, he, he could have reasoned with them. Like it's very logical to live in line with God's wisdom. Like live this way, follow these rules, establish your life on these propositions, and life will go well for you. Like the, the, very persuasive. But when Solomon attempts to persuade his sons to choose wisdom, he does not give them a syllogism. Instead, he spends giant chunks of his discourse trying to awaken their desires to the benefits of being humble. He says, if, if you walk in line with the words of God, if you live in line with the grain of God's wisdom, then peace will they add to you. It will bring healing to all your flesh, refreshing to your bones. Your barns will be filled. filled. Your vats will be bursting. Wisdom, he says, is better than treasure. Imagine that. Better than treasure. She brings long life. She brings pleasantness. She brings peace. And then more than one, it says, he, more than one time, he says, nothing you can desire, nothing, nothing, nothing that you desire can compare with her. Walk securely. Your foot will not stumble. And if you walk in God's wisdom, you will lie down without fear and your sleep will be sweet. Don't you know that in the world God has made, humility, the fear of the Lord, is worth more than gold? Like if you were to mine your deepest desires and then line them all up in front of you, and you could have a guarantee that all of them would be fulfilled, still all of them put together and the fulfillment could never compare to the value of humility. It is only with humility, not with any of those things. It is only with humility that we can lie down and sleep without fear, sleep in peace, have refreshing in our bones. Now, if you want to see what the outcome of a life is that is defined by wisdom, when someone thinks this way, when they long that way, when they walk in this way, the ironic part is that we can't actually look at Solomon. He died in disgrace, having departed from the way of wisdom. To see what it looks like 
For a man to live his life in nothing but the fear of the Lord, we must look to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the essence of humility, of the fear of the Lord. Like never was there more a more dependent man. Never was there less, a less independent man. On one occasion he said to the Jews who persecuted him, I only do what I see my father doing. On another occasion he said to his disciples who were urging him to eat food, like listen, I have food to eat, to eat that you don't even know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ was so humble that he poured out his life to death, even death on a cross. And it's here that we complete our picture of what humility really is. Proverbs tells us that it's a posture of the heart that is teachable, posture of heart that is able to be led. And here we see at the height of wisdom, the paragon of the fear of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, the fulfillment of humility in him is to give yourself away for the flourishing of others. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross, which is exactly what Paul is arguing in Philippians chapter 2. On that day and upon that hill, Jesus, in essence, stood in the middle of the vast orchard of bitter fruit that grew up out of every prideful and disgraceful decision we ever made against him. And he walked every row and ate it until his flesh was poisoned, until his teeth were set on edge, and in the end, the trees were bare. And as his stomach turned from the bitterness and the gall, he looked for comfort from his father only to find that he himself was forsaken. And because of this, all who believe in Jesus, even though we must still reap the fruit of the folly we sow, we are forgiven the sin that led to our folly, which is the bitterest fruit of all. And even though we still must reap what we sow, we will never be alone in it. When we sit down and taste the bitterness of our own foolish decisions, the Lord Jesus, by his death and resurrection, and now through his spirit, will be with us, not as one who has never tasted bitterness, but as one who says, I have tasted more bitterness than I could ever explain to you. Be at peace, my child. I will never leave you. And if you are moved by that, if something deep within you stirs when you consider the wisdom of God slain for the sake of our folly and our sin, then allow me to name the experience that has taken hold of you right now. That is the fear of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, brothers and sisters, we come now to the table of Christ, who is our wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote about this table in his first letter to the Corinthians, and I, I want to read it to you. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord 
what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So this bread and this cup are the sweet fruit of Christ's forgiveness for your sins and mine. So let us eat and drink in the fear of the Lord. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know that we long to live in your wisdom. We know because we have been alive long enough that our foolish intent to live without reference to you only leads us to disaster. And yet, Father, we are weak people and we continue to choose it. Will you empower us by your spirit who grants wisdom to help us live in grain, in the grain of reality. There we are the happiest of all people. But if you are going to give us that kind of grace, it must be a gift. We don't have any way to earn it. We don't have any way to force your hand. And so we only cry out. And now, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, Will you grant us that grace even now? In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Brothers and sisters, you may eat and drink. <clears throat> 